The sperm hits the egg, conception occurs, and you've just about ended all the things that everybody agrees on. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, abortion. Why does the subject of abortion generate so much heat and so little light? We, from the very beginning, started in on an either-or. Our guest is Cynthia Gorney, author of Articles of Faith, A History of the Abortion Wars. Either it's completely a part of the woman's body and she has dominion absolutely all the way to the end, or it's absolutely a separate person and she has no choice in it. Is a fetus a living human being? That is the question. Is a fetus a person? That is the question. This entire conundrum is like something cooked up to break philosophy students' heads. Who decides? Science? Religion? The courts? Or philosophy? Our problem is that we haven't thought enough about the moral status of the fetus. Recorded in front of a live audience at the Marsh Theater in San Francisco. Abortion. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. After the news. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Today, we're recording the program in front of a live audience at the Mars Theater, San Francisco's breeding ground for new performance. Our thinking originates at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy Talk. Our topic today is the hot-button issue of abortion, John. That's a very frightening topic, Ken. Oh, come on, John. We're the program that questions everything. We're not afraid to plunge into the discussion of any idea, no matter how controversial. I'm not afraid of ideas, Ken. Bring them on. It's the people that care so much about the ideas that, that I worry about. I don't want some nut from a fringe right-to-life group to blow up KALW or the Marsh Theater. Well, John, you know, as popular as we are, I don't think we have a big listener base on the violent fringe of the right-to-life movement. Well, how about the other side? I mean, I've had people tell me that I'm some sort of macho, control freakish, insensitive, stereotypical male a-hole for saying things like, Abortion, that raises some interesting philosophical questions. <laughs> well, John, you may be, well, <laughs> well, John. You, you were going to say, I, I may be a macho yeah, a-hole, but I was not going to that say reality. that, but I thought better. <laughs> but anyway, gird your loins. Because, like it or not, we're going to talk about abortion, and you know what we're going to do? We're going to shed light rather than heat. Well, then, in the spirit, I think the first thing we need to do is to divide it into two issues. Okay, go for it. Well, there are two potential acts that you're thinking about when you're thinking about the rights and wrongs of abortion. There's abortion itself, an act perpetrated on a fetus. And then there's the possible act of restraining a woman from getting an abortion, an act perpetrated on the woman. And, and so you can ask about each of them, right or wrong. Now, first, why is abortion morally objectionable if it is? Are we violating the rights of the fetus? Is it a person and we're violating its rights? Or is there some other, maybe a little bit more abstract reason, like that it expresses a cavalier attitude towards human life? Okay, so that's one moral question. What would you think the second moral question is? Well, the second one is, now, if, if you're thinking about the interference with a woman's choice to have done with her body what she wants, to have an abortion, well, why is that morally objectionable if it is? Have you wronged the woman? 
Uh, do we as a society or a government have the right to interfere with an exercise of that choice? If so, or why not? Well, well, wait a minute. But doesn't the f- answer to the first question just entail, just determine the answer to the second question? Well, you might think if it's morally objectionable to abort a fetus, then it's morally right to right. keep people from doing it. But things aren't that simple. Uh, just because there might be something morally objectionable about doing something, it doesn't follow that the government has the right to interfere with that person's doing it. Well, explain that to me. I, I don't think, I'm not sure I get that. Give, well, I mean, I think it's wrong to drink yourself silly in your own home in a way that undermines your potential as a human being and your ability to have relationships with other people. I think that's morally objectionable. It's the wrong thing to do. But I don't think the government or society has the right to prevent me from doing that wrong thing in my own home, alone, not hurting anybody else. Yeah, but the abortion case is different, John. It's not parallel. Because if abortion is wrong because a fetus has a right to life, and abortion is in fact the murder of a human being, it's a much more serious wrong, and a wrong of a completely different kind than drinking oneself into oblivion. I mean, if that's the right answer to the first question, that it's ab- abortion is murder, then doesn't that just determine the answer to the second, that the government and society have a right, not just a right, a duty to prevent abortions? Well, you might think so, but there's a famous article by Judith Thompson. She imagines a situation in which a gifted violinist, for reasons that remain obscure, has taken up residence in your abdomen, Ooh, Ken. God. <laughs> And it has to remain there for nine months before it can be safely extracted. Now, in some sense, it would be wrong to kill the violinist, and extracting it prematurely might mean that it would die. So there'd be something morally objectionable about that. But it doesn't follow that we would have the right to prevent you from doing it. I mean, you might have a right to get things that you don't want in your abdomen out of your abdomen. Even if they have to die. Even if they have to die. Well, yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, I think it's more subtle than that. But (laughs) but I admit it's an interesting point. But let me make a distinction. I mean, there are two basic strategies that you can imagine that people use for defending a person's right to choose an abortion. Okay. And the first one strategy, I think it's probably the most straightforward strategy, makes a distinction between the human and the person. It says, basically, that the right to life pertains to persons. And it's not the case that every living human being is a person. So even if we grant, which it seems to me undeniable, I don't see how people can deny this, that a human fetus is a a living human being, it doesn't follow that it's a person. It takes more than to be a person than just be a living human being. And so it doesn't follow that it has a right to life and that killing it is a case of murder. So people who advocate this line argue that being a person, as opposed to a mere human being, involves various things that fetuses don't have, at least in the early stages, at least as far as we know, or can be sure of, perhaps self-consciousness, certain emotions, the ability to feel pain, and the like. Right, right, stuff like that. And then the other strategy is the one you were talking about earlier, the Judith Jarvis Thompson strategy. It says, even if a fetus is a person, even if killing it is homicide, it may be something that a woman has a right to do. Because let me think of it, homicide is justified in certain cases in self-defense or in war, and perhaps it's justified when a person has taken up residence inside you, you know, especially if it's taken up side, inside you against your will, like in the case of rape. Right, and, and, or, or, or these violinists. I mean, you know, you have to really be careful. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> 
So now that we've clarified things, it should be a fairly simple matter to figure out where the truth lies and resolve these issues once and for all. Uh, John, I think that's a little optimistic, but you know, our chances of at least understanding the different positions and the rationale behind them might be enhanced when our guest, Cynthia Gorney, joins us in a bit. She's a UC Berkeley professor and an expert on the history of the abortion wars. And we want our live audience here at the Marsh to join in the conversation, too. But first, our roving philosophical report Angela Kildoff talked with someone who listens to abortion stories on a daily basis. She files this report. We rarely hear honest accounts of abortion. I was a 19-year-old, first-generation Indian, paralyzed by the threat of bringing shame to my family. I didn't even know what an abortion was, really. I just knew that it would fix it. That's an excerpt from one woman's story. She recorded it with the help of the Center for Digital Storytelling, an exhale, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting women who've had an abortion. If the pause between an inhale and exhale is divinity, the space between sorrow and healing is evolution. My abortion forced me to find my strength. My abortion gave that little girl a voice, cemented the woman, the fighter inside. My abortion gave me life. When we talk about abortion, we default to terms like pro-life or pro-choice. These are words that come from the political debate, but the terms are limiting, according to Aspen Baker, founder and executive director of Exhale. We all know how to talk about abortion politically. We know how to talk about abortion morally. We know that there's a religious component to talking about abortion. But one of the things that we rarely hear is about the personal experience of abortion. One out of every three women in the U.S. will have an abortion in her lifetime, making it more common than most realize. Exhale understands that abortion will take place whether or not it's legal or illegal. With this understanding, Exhale runs a national talk line for women. There's so few places for them to talk about a personal experience with abortion because you don't see those stories on TV very often. You don't know who is the right person to talk to. And so they pick up the phone and they call us. And a lot of what they say is, you know, to ask questions. Am I the only one? Do other people feel this way? How come nobody else talks about that? Because Exhale welcomes everyone, Baker and her co-founders had to carefully consider how to position the organization. We saw from the beginning that carrying a pro-choice or pro-life label wasn't really going to help us, you know, reach out to women who've had abortions because women who've had abortions come from across the political spectrum. Pro-life women have abortions, pro-choice women have abortions, people who've, you know, don't use either of those labels. In order to place themselves outside of the traditional debate, Aspen Baker and her colleagues created their own vocabulary. Part of the problem is that the debate has gotten so narrow that there is so little room for any new ideas or any new perspectives. And hearing from women who have had abortions would certainly bring a new perspective into the debate. And so that's our story of how we came to coin the term pro-voice as a representative, represent the fact that we believe women's experiences with abortion need to be heard and understood. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Angela Kilduff. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.